The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 6. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Happy to be talking to you about food. A couple of things for housekeeping. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, you can visit the culinarylibertarian.com slash podcast page. And there you'll find my social media buttons and you can follow me there. You'll also see the icon for the Patreon support and Bitcoin and PayPal if you want to donate or support me with green. At the Patreon, you can also support for $3 a month and get a Culinary Libertarian bumper sticker. At $5 a month, get a Culinary Libertarian coffee mug. And there are pictures of those at patreon.com slash culinary libertarian. Uh, also, if you would go download the podcast on iTunes and give me a rating and maybe write me a review, that'll help move the podcast up and share it around with your friends. Anybody you know who likes cooking or wants to learn about the things you were talking about, share it around on Facebook and Twitter and help me spread the word and let's get some people in the kitchen. Hey folks, today I'm talking with Haley Heathman, the author of the fairly newly released e-cookbook, Kill It, Clean It, Cook It, Eat It. It's a cookbook for wild game and how to how to hunt and obtain and clean and cook your wild game. With that as a topic, it is, I think, important to at least preface some of the discussion is a little frank about cleaning an animal. So if this is a thing that you would rather not listen to, uh, be warned or at least alerted that we don't get real gory, but theater of the mind is a funny thing. I try to keep the show language-friendly. Haley says a word that you will hear on TNT's The Closer and Major Crimes and several other television shows. It's not a big bad word, but in case this is the thing that you want to monitor little ears who are hunters, um, the decision is yours. I'm just letting you know. Those caveats aside, this is a very interesting conversation about what it takes to prepare for the hunt and be the hunter and what do you do once you bag your trophy. I'm here with Haley and we're going to talk about Haley's well, relatively new e-cookbook. Well, more than just cooking, it's a everything book for the hunter. So Hi, Haley. Hey, how's it going? Going pretty good. Tell us the name of your ebook. Yeah, it's a digital ebook. It's called Kill It, Clean It, Cook It, Eat It, the complete field to table guide to bagging more game, cleaning it like a pro, and cooking wild game meals that even non hunters will love. Now, that is to, to make a pun a mouthful of a subject. Yeah. That is. I just wanted to get the point across that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a comprehensive, like you said, it's not just a cookbook, although there's certainly that element in there, but it's whole.
whole, you know, walk you through the step-by-step process of cleaning it, field dressing it, and then cooking it. Because while I initially started off with the the cooking side of things in mind, that's more of my expertise. I'll throw it out, throw that out there from the beginning. I'm I'm more of the um, stronger on the cooking side of things than I am on the hunting side of things. But in order to, especially with wild game, to make good tasting wild game meals, it starts. It really does start in the field. So you you can't you know have a you know treat your animal poorly in the field and then expect that you're going to be able to work miracles in the kitchen it's just not going to happen i mean if you've got a if you gut shot your animal if you didn't get a clean shot you know if it had a lot of adrenaline and you had to chase it down for a while or you know you let it sit in the sun for quite some time and didn't keep it at proper temperature etc cetera, etc cetera. you know that's all going to contribute to mediocre food in the kitchen no matter what you do with it that's what wild game is prone to i'm kind of going through the whole experience to make sure that you have as good a chance as possible to make phenomenal wild game and wild game can be phenomenal it really can i think people have a misconception about that and that was part of the reason why i wanted to do this to begin with because I know even lifelong hunters who would avoid hunting certain types of game, common types of game, like turkey. Like, oh, no, no, turkey's no good. We can't, you know, I mean, it's running around like literally in my front yard. I think you've probably seen photos on Facebook where I've got two dozen turkey in my front yard and and I got hunters saying, no, 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 it's no good, whatever. And I'm like, um, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I have seen those pictures and, and I'm sort of in awe and amazed and just sort of licking my chops, waiting for the season to open and look at the calendar. Come on time. Come on time. Yeah. I, I think um, we can just walk out the front door in your underwear and, and, and have a Turkey supper that night. But you know, I, I, and that's, but that's usually the hens. I think for the, for Turkey hunters, you know, the, the prize, of course, you want your gobbler, you want your, your, you know, boss Tom and uh, so to speak. And so that's a little bit more challenging to get is, you know, the lure and the big one. And that's where the dance begins. You know, the I call it in my book a pas de deux because you're doing a little bit of a subtle dance between you and the, the boss, Tom, the gobbler you want. And getting a hen is a little bit easier than getting the Tom that you want with the spurs and the nice fan and everything. So makes for a nice decoration on the wall. Yeah. Um, before we get into the book too much, I do want to say that I found the humor really well-placed and in some cases, just laugh out loud funny. A lot of the cultural references, uh, some of them topical, some of them just part of the American fabric. Uh, I think you really get to just reaching the person who this is for is just someone who wants to go either a seasoned hunter, which I guess is kind of a pun, or the mm-hmm. the, the person who's interested in, in what do I do. And I never hunted. I lived in North in Michigan, surrounded by hunters. Rifle season was kind of an unofficial day off of school because everyone's gone. Surrounded by hunters, I never hunted. And I got a lot of information out of this as far as what do you, the hunter, need to know? That was something that was really impressive. So talk about some of the things that may not be immediately obvious, like setting your rifle, choosing a rifle. I didn't think there was a difference that guns a gun, right? Right. Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, a couple things that you mentioned there. First of all, yes, I, I, I wrote this book and I, di- I didn't want it to read like a textbook. I didn't want your eyes to glaze over and feel like you needed to take notes and read, you know, go back and read the paragraph 17 times to understand, you know, what I'm talking about. I wanted it to be a fun, infotaining sort of read. And um, I'm glad to hear that I accomplished that and that you found it to be pretty 
entertaining in in that regard. In that same vein, I wanted it to be approachable for many types of hunters. So, you know, if you go to my sales page, when you, when you go to, to buy the book, the sales page itself is it's more geared towards beginner hunters, people who might just be getting started. But for whatever reason, you know, you don't want to hire a guide or, you know, a lot of people these, they feel intimidated because a lot of people they've been hunting their whole lives and like, well, geez, you know, my dad never took me hunting and there's just so much to learn. And I don't think I could ever go out and, you know, there's such a steep learning curve that I don't know that I could even go out and do it even if I wanted to. And I think that this takes the mystery out of it somewhat. It gives you a nice primer on um, everything to expect. And like you said, from everything from the gear that you need. And, and I focus on, I had to narrow it down in some areas. So I only focus on, you know, rifle hunting or, or gun hunting, I guess I should say. Um, I don't get into bow hunting or anything like that. It's just, I had to narrow the scope in some ways. So yeah, I mean, I go through everything from like the gear to drills that you can do to improve your hunting and go from there. And, and, and that helps make it approachable to the beginner hunter. But I say, you know, if you're a, even if you're an experienced hunter, I mean, I, it talks about six of the most commonly hunted types of game in North America. So we've got elk, deer, upland bird, I include pheasant and quail and turkey, duck and goose. And so for the experienced hunter, for somebody who might want to expand the types of game that they hunt. So if you've already gotten into whitetail, but you think, oh, you know, I've always wanted to try, you know, waterfowl. That, so that always looks like fun and everything. You can do that. Or if you you've been a turkey hunter and want to get into some more upland bird shooting you can do that or if you've already hunted whitetail and you want to go into even bigger game and and get you an elk which is mighty tasty I, I show you how to do that as well so there's a lot of different people that who this book would appeal to and then again same thing fine if you've got all of that if if you're already the experienced hunter if you, you you hunt many types of game then that's what the cooking side of things is for because like I said and that was sort of the genesis for the book to begin with was that I knew lifelong hunters who you know I've gone out over to their house for a meal and I'm like I have to choke down food I'm like "Mm, wow that was great Larry (laughs) yeah you know I'm sorry I'm just not very hungry right now I just I had a late lunch and I can't eat anymore you know it's like if you only have three go-to recipes and you use them over and over and over again or you know believe it or not if you're not a hunter you don't a lot of people don't particularly like the gamey flavor of venison or meat and that's why they get turned off and, and they think it's gross and so you might not think it's a big deal, but everybody else does because they don't like that flavor. And that's, you know, I teach you how to work around that and get around that. Well, I will say even one who's eaten plenty of game and cooked plenty of game and worked with farm-raised ostrich, farm-raised antelope, even a farm-raised game bird is going to end, or animal is going to end up having a gamey taste. It's not handled properly. Even a well-experienced diner isn't going to prefer a gamey tasting meat. That makes sense. Nobody wants I, I don't. And that, but I mean, me personally, and I'm still experimenting with some food I mean, I still feel like I've nailed venison pretty good. And that, that's one of the hard ones because it's most common. I said, if anybody's had a bad experience with game meat, it's venison. I mean, we've all had the dreaded, like, livery kind of gross tasting venison where you taste like you're eating rotten eggs or something, you know. And I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, A, because I've had some good quality meat to work with, but also because, I, like I said, I've kind of mastered it. But uh, And I've done pretty good with my upland bird and the turkey. I think I'm still working out duck and goose a little bit. Goose especially 
goose is a goose is a tricky one. Goose is a tricky one. Yes. Yeah, especially and especially when they are wild, not farm raised. Wild duck and wild goose are entirely different animals. I mean, than your farm raised ones. So I mean, the the goose breast or the duck breast that you get from D'Artagnan or at your local grocery store is not anywhere the same thing as what you shoot and harvest yourself. The fat content, tougher birds because they're actually using their wings and uh, you know flying as opposed to living a life of luxury and <laughs> well i suppose it would be a relative luxury but yes and your, your point right is, is of valid. a short short life of luxury yeah well that brings up an interesting point with the wild animal of any kind versus the farm raised even though being the beast that it is is going to be at least somewhat predisposed to being gamey flavored if it's overcooked or handled poorly. I worked with a certified master chef who was very much into his game meat. We did venison. We actually (laughs) used to hang uh, whole pheasants in the walk-in, much to the chagrin of the health inspectors. We hide them, but they were feathers Mm -hmm. on, head on, complete animals. They would hang in the walk-in for a minimum of a week. Then they'd be clean. And as the butcher, part of that was my job, but it made a big, big difference in how the meat tasted. Everything Mm -hmm. got either, especially the the legged animals got a brine so my question Mm -hmm. is for you as the author of the book with the cooking part i'm going to put you on the spot and it's an impossible question to answer brine or cure brine well especially with like duck and goose because you know there's so much it's it's a dark meat and there's it's so bloody basically i mean it constantly using it 100 percent. i brine duck and goose so i guess in case somebody's not familiar you know it's usually some sort of a salt water saline solution and you can put some aromatics in there and i'm not sure if you read in the book but i actually thought you know i read a a pretty scientific article about the aromatics not actually being able to do very much because of the size of the molecules not being able to penetrate the the flesh but that's getting into the neck of it but it's at its heart you know the the core it's just like a saline solution that where the salt via osmosis is able to push out some of the blood and, and tenderize the meat as well and so it kind of has a dual purpose and so i absolutely do it with duck and goose i do it with turkey as well more to tenderize it and especially the turkey legs because that's one of the things that you know i was told oh you can't eat the turkey legs you know i'm like well hold my beer (laughs) but i don't i don't do it with venison i don't really see the need especially with a good quality specimen that you're working with and and the processor that we use we're up in montana they're excellent you know they do a great job of you know getting enough fat content in there and and you know if you're using if they're doing a sausage and they've got nice blend of seasonings and everything you know you don't need to with backstrap and tenderloin you know i mean really you can just see you know as long again as long as you don't overcook it like in the book, rule number one of cooking game, do not overcook. Do not overcook. You're, yeah, rule number two, remember rule Yeah, it's one. like Fight Club. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. You know, with venison and, and elk, elk is another beautiful, beautiful cut of meat. I mean, I think for, for that, for your tenderloins and backstraps, there's no need. You can just, part of the beauty of it, I mean, you can literally cut it out. And if you're you're there in the field, if you're if you're having camp or whatever, and and you can fry it up on your on your camp griddle that night, and it's it's delicious, you know. Whereas I, 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 necess- I me personally, some people would, but I wouldn't do that with my duck or my goose. Now we did that with the, with some duck we did shot last year, and it was tender. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was tender enough. It wasn't the texture that threw me off, 
but again, you kind of just get that like little gamey aftertaste that I don't love, <laughs> you know, me personally. It's nice and tender and, and, you know, even though it was seasoned well, you could just still at the back at the, in the finish, you just get enough of that little gaminess to kind of give you the little little heebie-jeebies a little right. bit like hmm. so I, I think you know when I my style of cooking and and then like I said especially because I do I'm doing it with a focus of ensuring that normies non-hunters love it then you know you have to do as much as possible to eliminate that gamey flavor because a lot of people don't like it including myself and I and I you know I'm a casual hunter you know like I said I'm not the expert hunter I'm a casual hunter I've had plenty of game meat and I still don't still don't love the gamey flavor so I do as much as I can to minimize it well and no one should like the gamey flavor are you a personally do you enjoy the organ um i i've never i've never been a liver person myself and i don't i don't care for that in any form i don't like beef liver calf liver whatever i just don't like i just i'm not a liver person myself other organs i can i can sort of do and and again and I haven't worked enough with them, to be honest, to have an opinion. I know that there are lots of things you can do with them. Hank Hank Shaw, he does the hunter, angler, gardener, cook, and he's probably one of the, I would say, one of the forefathers of uh, wild game cooking. He has some excellent books that teach you how to use all of the organs. The extent that I use organs for, I use a, I use them for like my game birds, like pheasant and you know those other game birds. I'll put them in the in the stock pot. So I you know I'll when I roast them or something, um, I'll see you know pan sear them or you know you give them a little bit of roast, but then I throw them in the stock pot and make a broth. So at least you're still using them, even if you're not like directly eating them. Hank Shaw's favorite phrase, and he does he uses it for like more for duck hunting, and he's 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 the real expert at showing how to do it, but he calls it everything but the quack uh, l- learning how to use literally i mean even the feet i mean like he said you know he'll use the feet and you can get a nice collagen out of them if, if you boil them in there with your with your broth you, you know you can get a nice bone broth sort of collagen and it's really healthy for you and everything but you know he shows you how to use the wings and which are especially in real game birds very very tough you know and how to make them palatable and everything a lot of people a lot of hunters they just you know breast it out leave the rest and that's fine because especially if you've shot your limit that's a lot of plucking and chopping to do so it's okay but I think and I mentioned this I think you're doing the birds a disservice and you're kind of making hunters look bad too if you only ever breast out your bird and you never make any attempt to do you know use any of the organs or render or get the fat out duck fat of course as you know is liquid oh my gosh Um, fabulous yeah Or, or or you know so if you're only ever breasting out your bird your, you know, with your duck or your goose, you know, in particular, you know, you really should make a, a bit more of an attempt to try and do some more things with it. You don't have to do it every time, but I would say at least, you know, 30 to 50% of the time you should be trying to, you know, as opposed to just breasting it out, pluck your bird and, and use it whole or, you know, saving the legs. And, and I made a delicious sort of fake confit with pheasant legs the other day that they would work perfect for duck legs as well it's kind of like a quick easy fake confit but still and it was delicious i mean fabulous but it was something that probably most people wouldn't think to do they would think oh they're no good they're tough they're you know stringy whatever so i i touch i touch on that but you know, that being said, I'm still learning as well. And, and I know that I probably things I could do better with learning how to use organs and stuff and whatever I cook. And when I was at that restaurant with the uh, the master chef, 
Uh, so those pheasants would be plucked, and then of course uh, we would leave the take the wishbone out, but leave the cage intact on the on the breast, and leave the skin on, but also uh, lard them, which is very thin layers of pork fat back. Uh, tie it onto the outside, and then as the as the bird cooks, the fat. The idea is that the fat is going to go into the meat to help make the meat a little bit more tender because pheasant breast mm-hmm. meat has zero fat, and it's, and mm-hmm. because they've been flying, uh, it's going to be if you overcook it, man, is it, it's like chewing pencil erasers. Uh, and then from the legs, we would braise mm-hmm. the the legs in a roasted pheasant stock, and by the time those things were done, oh, they were just fantastic and it took some time to do Mm -hmm. and of course the abilities in a commercial kitchen are often going to exceed the space and abilities for the home kitchen so it's not Mm -hmm. a fair thing to say that well just because the restaurant did it you can do it at home well that's an unfair assessment and that's not really (laughs) always true um, because the professional cooks are often going to have a level of experience in the kitchen that most home cooks don't have. If if one has the skill and the inclination, boy, braised pheasant legs are worth doing. Yeah, yeah. It took me about three hours, I think. That and they were good, but it was something that you needed to eat right away. Uh, you know, because wh- my husband had gone on a pheasant hunt with our Brittany, and he does bird hunting, of course. And they brought back like seven pheasant or so. So that was fourteen legs. And anyway, so I like I said, I did sort of a quick and quick and easy fake confit and they were delicious but if i would have let them sit like when it wasn't something that, w- that would have been good the next day like <laughs> well that's a whole lot of eating maybe get some friends yeah but they're you know they're thin enough i mean there's an- enough but it was like and they were tasty enough and we didn't have any- anything else so it wasn't like eating a whole chicken leg so mm-hmm. you mentioned a minute ago about hunters who are going to just take the breast meat and not really sure what they're doing with the rest of the bird that mm-hmm. seems to present an ethical issue for hunters and hunting and i think the idea of killing certainly amongst non-hunters would be an issue mm-hmm. to discuss as an ethical issue and and i think there are arguments to be made about that and overpopulation but my concern and my focus of this question is explain a little bit about what you think is the difference between uh, hunting as an ethical hunter and then what practices might be unethical practices and how do you police that? Is that even possible? What do you do when you meet that person who's being disrespectful to the animal? Well, there are a few different ways that it's addressed. Number one, you know, there are, there are laws and every state is different, so you have to look them up. But there are laws against it first and foremost in most states i think you have to take a certain portion of your animal um even with ducks and geese i think you have to take a wing or you you know use it's either a percent and like i said it varies state by state and i'm trying to think uh, what montana's laws are and i think it's like you have to use um, the legs and the wings or something there's something about it where you're supposed to use a certain amount and it's kind of like most people actually in reality don't and that's kind of why I mention it in the book as well it's one thing with with duck and geese and it's kind of like okay I get it you should probably use like like Hangshaw says everything but the quack or at least you know make an effort it becomes a serious ethical violation when you start talking about you know your larger game animals you know like in particular deer because that's the most commonly hunted type of animal but I mean, if you really are just, you know, going hunting, you know, taking the backstrap and the tenderloins and, you know, not much else, then that's that's 
a waste, then you really are doing a disservice to that animal and you really are making hunters look bad. You're trying to basically improve the PR between hunters and non-hunters and non-hunters who think that hunting is cruel, etc. Well, you're not doing us any favors when you're acting in that unethical manner. So, you know, fortunately, I mean, I don't personally know any unethical hunters and you, you know, you wouldn't do it. And I would, and then there's poachers as well. And poachers poach for various reasons. Some just to get, you know, racks and some poachers because they got their licenses taken from them for whatever reason. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons for it. You know, you can report people that, you know, to be unethical hunters, you know, if you know that they're just you know taking select shots or maybe not humanely killing an animal or something like that but i would say by and large it's just a few bad apples that ruin the bunch i mean most every hunter that i know is extremely conscientious very humane very ethical very you know they want to do justice to the animal and a lot of people you know uh, myself included you shoot an animal and you'll go pray over it thank it for its sacrifice and you want to do that animal justice and by and large that is what you know the hunting community is about but you always have the, the few bad actors that ruin it for everybody well, I think that that's true. And, and I think probably, unfortunately, it's the few bad apples that probably get more of the attention than the people who are being respectful and ethical. Well, I think part of that, too, though, is, is you have the people who are going to not like hunting, just regardless of whether everybody were, was ethical or not. For some reason, and, and I wrote an email to my email list about this recently, and I said... It's funny because the the people who are most likely to claim that hunting is cruel or whatever don't like it and think it's gross and it's icky are the same ones who are probably out there urging everyone to shop at Whole Paycheck for their organic, all-natural, cage-free, all-natural, humanely certified, treated $17 a pound meat. Which, (laughs) by the way, had to be killed to go into a little plastic container. Right, exactly. And, And as opposed, you know, and I'm like, well, if you want organic, all natural, humanely treated cage free animals, what more could you want than hunting? And it, it's great, you know, when you can actually see what your food has been eating and you know that it's out there. You're not eating anything that's been fed antibiotics. You're not eating anything that's, you know, been force fed, uh, uh, you know, diets or grain fed diets or anything unnatural. It's beautiful when you can open it up and you can see its stomach contents and you know, you can even smell it. You can smell, you know, the berries it's been eating. You can smell the sagebrush and, you know, or the nuttiness. And you already have an idea of what your what your animal is going to taste like. And it's also good because you can also see it if it is, you know, if there's something wrong with it. If it isn't, if it is a sick animal, you're going to know it. And you're like, oh, there's something wrong with that. I don't know what, but I don't want to eat that now. And so what's more... What, what could be possibly be more organic and humane than that? And yet some people think that hunting is cruel and I don't understand it. Well, I don't think I don't either. And it's entirely possible that we are not going to understand it. I think that's that's 100 percent possible. So <laughs> for those who decide they want to actually experience and if I mean, obviously you need to live in the part of the country where this can happen, living in the upper west side of New York is not really the ideal place to go hunting for deer. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go hunting deer. And one of the things you wrote about was masking your scent. So tell me, there's a difference between, uh, well, I, I remember the, the difference between masking and something else and 
how do you do that? And how sensitive really is the nose of the deer or the elk? Well, it's probably one of the most surefire ways you can ruin a hunt is if you don't mask your scent. It is very sensitive. They can smell you coming a mile away. And, you know, that's why they always tell you you want to be downwind from the animal so that they can't smell you out, especially in elk hunting, you know, and they tell you to pay attention to your thermals because if you're out in the mountains, they've got thermal winds that, you know, are cyclical. So you always know which part of the day you're hunting, which way the thermals are going to be going. Are they going to be going up the mountain? Are they going to be going down the mountain? And uh, I liken it in my book with the deer hunting side of things is I, I give an analogy to the walking dead. You know, this is one of the more fun ways and relatable ways that I can make the point is, you know, with the walking dead, if you've ever watched it back when it was still good, uh, you know, that w- when there are certain times throughout the seasons where they would be in a seemingly impossible situation where they had the horde of zombies that had totally surrounded them and there was no way that they could fight their way out and they were backs up against the wall literally almost well what did they do they found a a dead zombie and basically literally covered themselves in zombie guts and blood and smeared it all over themselves and basically were able to sort of walk through the horde undetected because they smelled just like the rest of them so their human scent would have given them away but because they'd basically masked it all they were able to escape so similarly you you do that in deer hunting of course you don't have to smear yourself with deer gut but they have like scent masking uh, shampoos and body washes and deodorants so because even something like your deodorant or the toothpaste you use in the morning, you know, your minty fresh toothpaste will give you away. So you have to use scent-free deodorant. You have to use a laundry detergent to launder your your clothes. You don't want your gain rainy fresh uh, laundry detergent to give you away because even things like that that we can't smell that doesn't that doesn't smell anything like that to us will give you away to the deer. You even have to pack away your clothes in a separate container um some people will you know stand near a campfire to you know to start off with because some and and burn some green stuff because that will also help to mask your mask your scent and there are lots of other little you know techniques like that but those are the main ones to to be aware of when you go out there you know don't go smoke a cigarette or things like that that you think are totally innocuous and i said well smokers y'all smell bad to the rest of us no matter what. So if, you, if you smell bad to humans you're certainly going to smell bad to deer should be an obvious one but some of the less obvious ones like i said you know brushing your teeth the deodorant that you use the detergent that you use the shampoo that you use that stays on you and the deer can smell that. And if, if, especially if you're not staying downwind of your deer, then you're going to get smelled out and you're not going to see anything for the whole day. I should have known this living in Northern Michigan, but I was a little bit surprised to read and to find out really what I didn't know, that hunting is much more an active uh, sport than just going into the woods and sitting on a box waiting for nature to pass you by. You're you're talking about going out in some cases weeks or months ahead of time and sort of reading the ground. Mm-hmm. What should hunters, people who don't hunt who want to, what do they need to really understand about a successful hunt? Well, I'd say, and in, in this this goes for most types of game, you know, everything from elk to deer to waterfowl, to turkey, maybe not quite as much with the upland bird, the quail and the, and the pheasant, but especially those, the ones that I mentioned, the n- number one factor to success that 
almost any hunting guide will tell you is scouting. So you have to scout because you have to know where the animals are. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you're a sharpshooter from 200 yards away and you can cluster a group of bullets, whatever. If, if you don't know where to find your, your animal, it doesn't matter. So they say scout and there's pre-hunt, pre-season scouting where you you set up game cameras where you, so you can see where the the animals might be congregating you can see watches you can see if there are repeat bucks or or bulls that are keep coming through that you you know they might be forming a pattern between their corridors from where they bed down to where they go for food and where to drink. And um, it's, you know, scouting is even so important as to not just you yourself, but you, you get out your topographic maps, you know, you look where it's the most likely place to where they're going to be bedding down. Cause you have to think, what do they need? They need shelter, just, you know, the basics of what anybody needs shelter food water and you know where well sex i guess <laughs> that's less part of the scouting thing but yeah so you need to find out where they're likely to be sleeping where they're going to be getting their water from and what it is they're going to be eating and, and you know at certain times a year and you get out the topographic maps that you know shows altitudes that you know shows valleys and and you know gives a little bit of the shape of the land you talk to your county geologists you talk to the, the wildlife commissioners in the areas and you find out, pick their brains a little bit and find out what they know. So it is, you know, there is that element to it. And, you know, even in things like turkey hunting, where I talk about, well, there are a couple different styles of turkey hunting that you can have where um, you have the, the run and gun style where you are actually more chasing after the turkey. But the more traditional style is the the sit and wait. And even that, it seems like it's a bit of a, you know, like you said, just you go out there and you sit and you hope an animal turns out. But no, again, it, you have to have scouted the land beforehand to know that the turkeys are even going to be there, like where their roost is up in the trees and, and you know, when they're going to fly down and, you know, where the shooting lanes are and, and kind of where, where the radius, they tend to stay within a certain radius, what radius they stay in. So even though it does look like you're just sitting and waiting, you've done enough research in advance to give yourself the best possible chance of success. It wasn't just a random, oh, this looks like a good tree. I'm going to, you know, sit by this or whatever. So scouting is probably, of you know, the number one factor that that's going to lead to hunting success. And that happens, you know, a lot in the preseason. It also happens, you know, during the season as well. You're always going out and glassing for animals and things like that and, and kind of paying attention to the weather changes and, you know, there are even seasons within seasons with things like, you know, elk hunting. But yeah, that, that, that it, there's always something that you need to be paying attention to. It's a very much a strategic sport. And that's one of the things that draws people to it, I think, is that element of strategy and the problem solving involved in it. Well, and that's something that I, quite honestly, I just did. Just like people talk about, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to go put my, my tree stand up and I'm going to go hunting. I thought, well, <laughs> Yeah, okay. It just sounds like a reason to go drink beer. <laughs> and you know, for some it might just be a way to get out and, and who am I to mean, fine, great. So I was reading through the elk hunting part and I when we drove uh, from the east coast to the west coast, we stopped in Yosemite and it was very just it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of land and lying in the grass there are some elk and they're huge animals and they're really, really pretty. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Well, okay, that's elk, well, very good. 
So I'm reading through your part about hunting elk, and you're talking about climbing mountains and going into valleys and up steep rock inclines. I'm thinking to myself, well, there's a, I see a big, big problem because I'm climbing up a really tall, sharp, jagged rock to kill an elk, and I do it. How am I getting it out of there? <laughs> so oh, yeah. There's a level of physically fit that I think is easily overlooked. Being a hunter, especially if you want to get, you know, you, you're not going to go elk hunting by yourself, I don't think. <laughs> you have elk weighs twice of what you do or I do. So tell me about how does one do this? Elk hunting is, is challenging. I mean, it's, I won't say it's, well, considerably more so than deer hunting. So if all you've ever done is deer hunting and you're trying to make the jump to elk hunting is maybe your first foray into like really big game hunting yeah be prepared to work and i think that's maybe a mistake that a lot of people make and it's something that i know that a lot of hunting guides get frustrated at that you know a lot of the clients that they come especially if they don't live in mountainous states if they're living more you know in the city and this is their one foray out you know their hunting adventure that they've been saving for for a year or two and hoping to draw their tag and everything they get frustrated because the clients aren't in good enough shape to go after the bulls where they actually really are and the ones that you see you know you're talking about driving through yosemite and of course you know like yellowstone they're everywhere um, but they they're protected that's why they know <laughs> they know they can just hang out and nobody's nobody's gonna touch them you know, you go to where they actually are. I mean, of course, they're wild there in Yellowstone, but, you know, I'm talking about where people hunt them. You can't find them. You know, they are, especially the monster bulls, they're not dumb. They're really smart animals. You know, they are in the gnarliest terrain, thick brush, and they, the shooting it is like 25% of it. Because, yeah, you're right. They say the fun, the fun's over as soon as you have to start packing it out. That's, that's almost just as much work, if not more, to hunting the animal and, sh and shooting it. And, yes, you probably would need, I, I mean, I'm sure people do it, but I wouldn't recommend hunting, you know, a big animal like an elk, you know, 700-pound animal by yourself and having to pack out all that meat on your own. And that's when, you know, when you get into it, I don't even think ethically that you would, I don't know, I, I don't want to present myself as an expert, but I think ethically, you know, if you're trying to do that on your own, I think that, that there might be some questions there because, you know, hunting it on your own and trying to pack out 700 pounds of meat on your own that's just not going to happen well of course you don't pack out all of it but i don't know i i think you definitely need a buddy it's a team sport for many many reasons and i touch on that in the book too talking about the the, the fitness side of things and how to get in shape before the elk season because you don't want to especially if this is one of your only few opportunities you don't want to be so close to getting your prize and yet not be in shape enough to be able to to get it you know you want to be able to go as far as you need to go to get that bull elk that you're pursuing or whatever um, and you don't want to have to you know throw in the towel after day two because your legs just can't go up another steep incline or down really down is, is harder than up in most in a lot of cases but either way Way, you know your your thighs are going to be screaming your feet are going to be hurting and it is really a an exercise in mind over matter and and, and having the right attitude from the get-go because you are you're going to have to embrace the suck and I talk about it and I put it into sort of a, a military context in my book where you know you push through you have to embrace the suck but you're going to be richly rewarded at the end and you'll feel 
an incredible amount of pride when you complete your mission, basically. And that's what it is. But it's an incredibly physically and mentally challenging sport. It's a, it's a big jump uh, above your whitetail or, or deer hunting. People need to be prepared for it. I, I think so. And visualizing all of that work, I decided then and there, I'm not going to be an elk hunter. Yeah, I, it's uh, hey, I love, I mean, elk meat is fabulous and it is worth it. I mean, it is, some of the people would rank elk up there as in the top three types of game meat that you can eat. I actually served it at my wedding. I love elk. Elk is so good. You know, I gave, a, we had a small, smaller wedding. So it was a choice of elk or choice of grouper, which is a, a fish. So you know, it was, uh, you're, you're, you're getting pushed out of your comfort zone. None of this beef or chicken bullshit. You're getting elk or you're getting fish. I'm sorry, but it is fabulous. You know, moose, apparently I've never had moose, but apparently moose is phenomenal. Antelope is up there as well. I've had antelope. Antelope is, is really good. Um, but you know, those are probably some of the top three best game meats you can have. So it is worth it. I mean, elk meat is totally worth it. In addition to, of course, if you want a trophy or whatever, but you know, the, the meat itself, it's, you know, you can't beat it really. I don't know that I've ever had it, but I have had a uh, farm raised antelope because uh, in the restaurant, we needed some chain of custody proof. And then that was how we did it was we got farm raised, but even the farm raised antelope was just spectacular so delicious really mm-hmm. enjoyed it so it's mm-hmm. been many years but still a fond memory of what really good game meat tastes like without tasting gamey all right well let's wind it up here a little bit i wanted to ask you one quick question about flavor combinations and then i realized if you've never eaten wild turkey or or wild venison how would one know and this is a tough question to answer how do one know how do flavor match uh, and what I'm thinking about is if the bird or the animal is eating lots of berries, there's a reasonableness to make something berry-ish to go with it. So looking for some compatibility. In two minutes or less, do you have some sort of mm-hmm. easy, handy, this is the way to flavor combined? Are we going with color of meat or what do you have? Yeah, with uh, with things like your big game, like elk and venison, you know, you're always going to have an earthy flavor to it. I say earthy as opposed to gamey, or you could be both, but there's always going to be that sort of like earthy flavor to it, even if it's not particularly gamey. What I recommend for things like elk and venison, you you want to brighten it up a little bit. You don't you don't want to muddy it down with like a, a heavy brown gravy or something like you know. You want it to give it some zip. So berries and fruits, tart balsamic glaze um, I did a backstrap a venison backstrap with a creamy horseradish sauce something that's going to give be zippy to counterbalance sort of the earthiness that you get intrinsically in the meat and I include a lot of recipes that do that in my book as far as things like turkey and upland bird sounds cliche but it all kind of tastes like chicken to me so I think with those types of a game for me it's not so much about masking the gaminess I don't particularly find them very gamey you're, you're more fighting with textures there and making sure you don't dry it out because there's so many you know there's so little fat on it and it's a tough muscles so it's more about the texture and trying to fight the leathery stringy flavor than it is about or the texture than it is about masking the flavor and so it's not so with that you can do basically anything with it that you can do with chicken any flavor combinations I mean that's what I basically do you treat it like a big old field chicken 
But, you know, you go back into certain other techniques, like we talked about at the beginning, maybe brining it to tenderize it a little bit, or I talk about a lot, um, marinades as well. Um, especially if you have a lot of them, I make a big batch of marinade. You can marinate them overnight or put them in Ziploc bags and freeze them. And you have an easy, ready, go-to meal. Just defrost it and cook it. And it's already been, you know, marinated in the flavor. It'll be tenderized and everything. So that's really what you're fighting with there. So, you know, with, with your upland bird type game is more the texture thing than, than the flavor thing. And you can basically do anything with it that you can do with chicken right and you had an interesting uh, a turkey tetrazzini which would not be something i would have thought of so that was an interesting take on an old classic yeah excellent very good well i appreciate your time today and and this was the beauty of the internet in 2018 so yeah. i'm going to put a link for your book up on the show notes page and i haven't figured out what episode this is going to be but we'll be ready to go. And do you also have a website you want to share? Or is that the same thing? Yeah, it's going to be the same thing, but it's huntandcookwildgame.com. So that'll take you to the sales page. Um, I know you're going to be chomping at the bit. You don't have to read all the sales letter. Just go to the buy button and buy it. And it comes with uh, bonuses, bonus cookbook, audio interviews with expert hunting guides and audio transcripts. And it's really, uh, it's really a great value for any type of uh, either the beginner hunter, the experienced hunter, or somebody who just wants to learn how to cook wild game better. And it, it speaks to all those audiences and it's a really great product. Excellent. Well, I've, I liked reading it and I appreciate your time. Go buy her book. It's almost Thanksgiving. Go hunt your own turkey. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I had a really great time chatting to you. Well, good. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. If you are a hunter or just a carnivore and are interested in some ways to add flavor to your meat, either in marinades or in rubs, then visit culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice. I have nine or ten reused ice cream containers filled with all manner of spice blends from Savory Spice, they make the blends that I would make if I made spice blends. I do at home, but I don't sell them. These guys are top-notch, excellent quality stuff. You're going to love their product because I love their product. I will see you next week. Don't forget, give me a like and a review on iTunes. Bye.